Well, let's pray together then as we begin. Our Father, we are so thankful to be together again and to be gathered not just as a people, not just as um, friends and family, those who have common interests in this world, but as your people, as those who are bound together by our shared life, the life that is your life that is in Jesus our Lord. And so, Father, we gather in your name, but the name that has become ours as sharers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have bound us together in one spirit, in one faith. And we do pray that as we're gathered together today, that you will minister to our faith, you will minister to our joy, uh, that even as we have worshipped you in song, that we would continue to worship you in our consideration, in our, our thoughts, in our understanding. We pray, Father, that you will free us from everything that would distract us, everything that would bind our minds and keep us from worshipping you in spirit and truth in this time in the Word. So bless us, encourage us, build us up in this most holy faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as you know, last time we considered the event of uh, Isaac's being raised from the dead, the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, and that again brought to the, the forefront this concept of life out of death as a central biblical concept. We saw it really in the very beginning with Genesis 3 and the promise to Eve that the death that had come upon the whole creation because of uh, the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that death would somehow be addressed uh, by the birth of a son, a seed who would come to Eve, so that she became uh, the mother of all the living. Life would come out of death through this seed. And when God called Abraham, we saw the same thing in the sense that God called a man out of a pagan land, out of a pagan background, and, and called him to himself and covenanted with him to bring him to be with him in the place uh, that God himself would set apart for his dwelling place. The flood was another episode of, of life out of death, where uh, the world was deluged and and uh, the life on the earth was destroyed, but God preserved a man and his family to become the, the beginning of a new humanity. And so now also we saw that when Abraham presents Isaac, he presents him as the child of promise, the child who himself was life out of death in that he was born from a barren womb uh, to two very old parents. And as Abraham sacrificed him, uh, we know he didn't literally kill him, but he received him back from the dead, as it were, uh, in an act of life out of death. And that particularly that theme, uh, as we are now in the Easter season where we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it seemed appropriate to me to explore a little bit further this concept of resurrection. And the reason is that resurrection is obviously a very familiar topic uh, to most Christians. I would argue probably all Christians uh, know the word and understand something about resurrection. But I think often it's not very well understood. 
uh, in certain circles, resurrection is something more, uh, nothing more than, than simply the promise of uh, spiritual renewal, hope for a better life. You can listen to sermons where uh, that is the significance of Jesus' resurrection. Because he was raised from the dead, we can live in hope. We can live uh, with the confidence uh, that our lives will be better that we can find spiritual renewal, we can find uh, a better life even in this this particular world. There are others who um, perhaps even deny resurrection altogether and argue that uh, it's simply a symbol for the fact of Jesus' triumph and that he wasn't literally raised from the dead. But I think most often, certainly in my experience, uh, sermons that I've heard through the years, things that I've read, Jesus' resurrection tends to be treated simply as the proof of the success of his atoning work. In other words, his resurrection attests that by his death, by his atoning death, our sins have been paid for. And so therefore we can be confident that we can be saved and we can have the assurance of heaven if we will simply receive him as Savior and Lord. And so really all that Resurrection means to us is it gives us the confidence that we can be saved, that our sins have been atoned, that we can be forgiven if we will come to Jesus and receive him in that way. But whatever people's particular views of the resurrection, I think that we can all agree that resurrection doesn't get much treatment uh, in general in the churches. In fact, often we don't even think about it or talk about it much other than at Easter time, and then mostly in an evangelistic sense because we find our churches swelling on Easter and we don't want to miss the opportunity with the people who happen to show up on that particular day. But the truth is that resurrection is absolutely central to the scriptural uh, message. As we've seen, this theme of life out of death begins all the way back in Genesis 1 through 3 and traces itself throughout Israel's scriptures and ultimately uh, finding its climax in relation to Jesus himself. But then even throughout the New Testament, it is uh, the primary theme. It's at the very center of God's purpose uh, for the world and the work that he is doing in accomplishing that purpose. The resurrection uh, is absolutely the marrow of the early Christians' gospel. When they went out preaching the gospel, uh, they were not proclaiming to people how they could get saved and go to heaven per se. They were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, God's triumph that had come in him. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus was the very centerpiece of their own self-conception as Jesus' followers, the way in which they thought about themselves, the way in which they understood themselves. It was the center of their hope for themselves and the world around them. And so it was the very focal point of their message to the world. So far from being just some sort of remote topic uh, within Christianity that, that maybe is worthy of, a, of consideration once a year, resurrection is the core theme. It binds together the scriptures, and it's the very heart of Christian faith, hope, and, and testimony as well. And so I believe it's absolutely crucial that we should understand it, and we need to live it out if we will be faithful uh, as Christ's people. 
So just then some general considerations uh, concerning this topic of resurrection. And I've, I've titled this message, Revisiting Resurrection. But resurrection is really centered in the person of Jesus himself. And we see that in his resurrection, we, we discover human destiny being both physical and relational. And the reason I say that is that resurrection is often viewed uh, as just simply a spiritual thing. We are appointed for uh, our souls to go off to heaven when we die. And people often think of the resurrection, our, uh, our participation in it, in that sort of a way. Jesus was raised from the dead, and so we also will be raised from the dead in the sense that when we die, our souls will go to heaven. But resurrection is a physical thing. We see it even in the resurrection of Jesus. And so ultimately, it pertains to us in our entirety, inner man and outer man, body and spirit. And most importantly, and this is often missed, resurrection is a relational idea, a relational idea. So that the heavenly hope that God held out to the world and that was manifested in Jesus himself is the attainment of perfect, consummative human existence, body and spirit centered in the human relationship with God. And the reason for that ought to be obvious. Man was created as image bearer to be image son. And so human perfection is relational. It's not just moral. It's not ethical. It's relational. Human perfection involves absolute intimacy with God, intimacy at the whole, the level of our total being, body and spirit. It is complete oneness with him. This is what we see in John 14 in, in the upper room. We see it in Colossians 3, where Paul says, if you have been raised up in Christ, and his uh, premise is that the Colossians had been, they were already sharers in Jesus' resurrection life. If they had been raised up in Christ, that meant that they had died and their lives were hidden with Christ in God. That meant that Christ himself was their life, so that when he was manifested in his resurrected, ascended glory, they also would be manifested in the same glory. Their share in his resurrection was the perfecting of them body and spirit, the glorification of their own humanity by sharing in the glorified Christ. And again, I, I think among other things, that truth really flies in the face of the common notion of heaven as being the goal of human existence. So often, if you ask Christians, what, what is the goal towards which we are looking? What, what is the outcome that we are hoping in as Christians? And they will say, well, that it's that our souls will go to heaven when we die, full stop. And so heaven becomes the goal. And heaven is a biblical concept, but often we forget that it is a creational concept. And by that, I mean that heaven refers to God's existence in relation to his creation, not where he is, but how he is. And so before there was a created order, there was God. 
And there was no heaven in that sense. Heaven is the realm that he inhabits in relation to his creation and the realm that it inhabits. So heaven speaks to how God is, not where he is. And that's at the heart of this whole topic of sacred space as we've even been considering in this series. So heaven itself then is a relational reality. And just as a side note, that's also the case with hell as heaven's antithesis. Both heaven and hell are relational realities. They speak to one's relational proximity to God, not one's geographical or spatial proximity. So, for instance, Paul says to the Thessalonians uh, that those who don't know God, who have not uh, become obedient to his gospel, will be punished with eternal destruction and separation from his presence separated from the very presence of God. So these things then regarding heaven as the human destiny, heaven in a relational sense, the human being attaining to uh, the, the destiny for which it was created, this perfect exhaustive intimacy with God, these things help to explain why resurrection is crucially central in the outworking of God's purposes. And, and this statement you may not agree with. It may, it may be hard for you to get your heads around, but I would argue that resurrection is the very substance of heaven as the human hope. Resurrection is the very substance of this concept of heaven as it is the human hope. Well, why is that the case? Because resurrection is the human renewal that involves the essential and complete union and communion of the human person with God. If heaven speaks to how God is in relation to his creation, and it's a relational idea, us being fully uh, consummated in our intimacy with God, then resurrection is at the center of that because resurrection speaks to the human renewal that involves that uh, complete and perfect union of the human person with God. Another thing that we see from these uh, truths is the fact that God's goal for human beings isn't forgiveness and reconciliation. That's not his ultimate goal. Do we find forgiveness by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection? Absolutely. Was it a reconciling work? Absolutely. Paul says that by the blood of his cross, he reconciled all things to God, things in the heavens, things in the earth. So we very much uh, embrace and rejoice in the fact that Christ's death and resurrection has brought forgiveness and reconciliation. But those aren't the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is human renewal that is realized through being incorporated into God's own life in Christ by the Spirit. Again, that's Colossians 3. You died, your lives are hidden with Christ in God. And Paul said to the Ephesians that you were raised up in Christ, seated in that heavenly realm. You now inhabit that heavenly realm, that realm of existence that characterizes God himself. And so my point is this. God's intent for humans isn't eternity in a place called heaven, some place out there somewhere in space or however we conceive of that. That's not his intent. 
but his intent is an absolute everlasting union and communion that is the mutual indwelling of I in you and you in me. This is what we see in Jesus' teaching. This is what we see in in Paul's teaching. And so very clearly we see this in the orientation of Jesus' instruction in the upper room. And again, as we've talked before, the upper room was the time in which Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand the meaning, the significance, the outcome of what was coming the next day. Jesus was about to go to the cross. This was going to be a horrific episode that his disciples had no way to understand. In their thinking, the Messiah was going to come and he was going to fight the decisive battle against God's enemies and in that way establish the kingdom. The Jews thought in terms of the Messiah overthrowing Rome, certainly not the Messiah dying at the hands of Rome, let alone dying in such a humiliating way, beaten, battered, bloodied, absolutely conquered, as it were, by the Romans, by this Roman crucifixion. And they would have no way to understand the significance of that. And the upper room was the way in which Jesus was explaining to them what that meant, what would really come from his death. And interestingly, he didn't choose the day of atonement for the time for him to give himself in an atoning sacrifice. You would think that he would have picked the day of atonement, but, but he didn't. He picked Passover the time of God's great exodus, the time of God's great deliverance, the time when he would liberate his people from their subjugators and gather them to himself to be with him, to dwell with him where he is. And so Passover itself, which Jesus transformed through this episode of the upper room, uh, was the occasion. That was the, the context in which he wanted his disciples to understand the significance of his coming death. But as part of that instruction in the upper room, Jesus made it clear that his death meant that he was preparing a place for them in the Father's house. But then he went on to tell them that even though he was going to die, that was not going to be the end. He was not going to leave them. He would come to them. He would come to them in his spirit, a comforter, uh, uh, an advocate like himself. And in his spirit, he would cause them to know him in a new and a profound way. They had been with him. They'd been instructed by him. They knew him, but they would now know him in a profound way defined by this idea of I and you, you and me. He says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so you are in me. I am in you. And this is the way in which I will come with my father and we will make our place with you. This was the place he was going to prepare for them. A dwelling with God that is the intimacy of a spiritual union, I in you and you in me. That was the significance of his resurrection. This kind of exhaustive uh, being to being, person to person intimacy the taking up of the whole human creature, body and spirit, in the life of God. 
And importantly, Jesus also made it clear that that resurrection wouldn't be a resuscitation, but a new creation. It would be the obtainment of the human destiny, the consummate human existence for which man was created. It would be a new creation. And so Jesus was going to prepare a room for his disciples in his father's house, not a place for them to go when they died, but rather a new relationship with God, a new dwelling with God that would be founded in Jesus himself. Ultimately, that they together on Jesus, the cornerstone would become the dwelling of God in the spirit. So resurrection then concerns life out of death, but specifically in the sense of new creation. It isn't resuscitation. It's not the Frankenstein's monster thing or, you know, a person who's been dead for a few minutes coming back to life. It's not resuscitation. It is resurrection. It is new creation. But that new creation also is not, and this is important, it's not renewal to the prior unfallen human existence. In other words, Jesus' resurrection as a new Adam is not simply getting us back to the unfallen first Adam. Jesus' resurrection wasn't man's restoration to his initial created form, but man's attainment of his ultimate identity and purpose, the purpose and identity which God had eternally determined for him. If you will, Jesus, the last Adam, is eschatological man. He is completed man. He is man of the spirit man who is fully taken up in the life of God so to be comprehensively intimate with God. Man as completed such that as Jesus himself said, when you see me, you see the Father. You see in man as completed the very perfect image of God. To see man as truly man is to see the God whose image and likeness he bears. And so Jesus' resurrection was not simply returning to the creation of the initial state, but to the new creation, the final, the eschatological creation that God had intended from the beginning, and that was represented, symbolized by the initial creation. And also it's important to note that that last Adam, as a new Adam, bears his own offspring. As Adam bore sons and daughters in his own image and likeness, even in the context of the fall, so this last Adam, this new Adam that is the resurrected Messiah, bears his own offspring, not by natural generation, but by the power of his spirit. Sons and daughters who are of and in the Spirit in the same way and to the same extent that he is. And therefore they are heirs of all that he is heir to. We saw this in our study in the book of Hebrews that as the writer uh, to the Hebrews made so much of explaining uh, the significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection and the glorification that he enjoys at the right hand of the Father ruling above all powers and authorities that may be on the earth or in the heavenly places, the exaltation 
of the resurrected Son of Man. But he does that not simply to show the glory of Christ, but to make the Hebrew believers to whom he's writing uh, see that that is their own destiny. All their suffering, all of their, their difficulty, all of their humiliation, all of their powerlessness, what seems to be their defeat at the hands of uh, their Jewish oppressors, at the hand of the prevailing powers. In fact, their destiny already begun by their faith in Jesus. Their destiny was to share in all that Jesus shares in. To, as Paul says, when he is manifested in his glory, you will also be manifest in that same glory. All that he has inherited and will inherit, we are heirs of joint heirs with Christ. So Jesus then in his resurrection is the beginning of a new creation that will take into its grasp new sons and daughters, sons and daughters who also will share in that same glorified humanity. But because resurrection is new creation, it also reaches beyond the human race, beyond the human creature. It is a creation-wide phenomenon. And Paul hinted at that even again in Colossians when he said, by the blood of his cross, Christ reconciled to God all things in the heavens and in the earth. And in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the great, uh, most comprehensive treatment in Paul's letters of this topic of resurrection, he talks about how the resurrection of human beings will ultimately yield to this kingdom being summed up in the Messiah and delivered over to God that he would be all in all. And even more specifically, perhaps in Romans 8, Paul says that when the sons of God are fully revealed, when the people of God are made full sharers in the resurrection life of the Messiah, then the creation will finally attain its own perfection. It will uh, reap its own uh, benefit from the resurrection, the new creation that is in the Messiah. It is groaning, waiting for the day of its own renewal. So Jesus' resurrection implicates more than just human beings. It pertains to God's design to sum up the whole creation in his son. And we see that even with respect to the fall. The fall of Adam and Eve brought a curse on the whole creation. It wasn't just that death came upon them. Death came upon the whole created order. And so God's goal is to bring life out of death, not just to human beings, but to the whole creation. But it's important to note that resurrection doesn't apply to the non-human creation in the same way it does human beings. Uh, the the non-living creation isn't raised to life in the same way that human beings are, but yet it is appointed for its own renewal, a renewal in which it attains to the consummate perfection for which God brought it into existence, just as human beings also are brought to the consummate perfection for which they were brought into existence. And as I said, that renewal of the non-human creation stands upon and flows out of the final perfection of human beings. 
death went from the went from Adam and Eve out to the creation. The curse came on the rest of the creation because of Adam and Eve's violation. So it is when mankind is fully restored to God that the creation can then also be fully restored because man is the mediator. He stands between God and his creation. So new creation then in the physical realm, uh, resurrection, if you will, the renewal of the creation in the physical realm occurs at the same time for humans and non-humans. This is again Romans 8. Man's completion, the renewal, the, the resurrection of our bodies enables the creation's renewal, the creation's renewal. So some things then to think about, some practical implications, uh, even as we're preparing for the Lord's table today. The first thing that I want us to take from this uh, consideration, this revisiting of resurrection, is that we absolutely must think of ourselves and order our lives as those who have already been raised from the dead to share in Jesus' resurrection. We're not waiting for eternal life in that sense. We're not waiting for our souls to go off to heaven. Uh, we're not just people who have believed in Jesus and been forgiven and now uh, are trying to live a better life, a more faithful life, a more devout life. We're not the same people simply trying to live better lives uh, in hope of the day when we go off to heaven. We have already been raised up to share in the Messiah's resurrection. This is again what Paul says in Ephesians 1. This power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is working in us. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. And Paul says, yes, the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. Yes, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is already, the spirit within us, our spirits are made alive in righteousness by sharing in the Messiah. So the whole concept of being a Christian, the idea of coming to Christ in faith, this new birth, this new life, is that we are already renewed in the inner man. The inner part of us is already sharing in Jesus' resurrection. And that inner resurrection life is the promise, the pledge, the surety of the resurrection of our bodies to come. The life of the inner man will be fully completed when our bodies are raised so that we, body and spirit, the totality of our humanness, uh, that totality is taken up in the life of God, in Christ, by the Spirit. And this relational intimacy that God intends, I and you, you and me, will be at last fully realized. But that's already presently true. It's already true that we are in the Father and in the Son by the Spirit. The I and you, you and me is true. It already exists. And thus, even in the upper room, Jesus prayed that his disciples together as this new creational community would live that out. Father, cause them to be one as you and I are one. As I am in you, you are in me, so they are in us. And cause them to live that out, to manifest that in the world in order that the world would understand that you sent me, that the world would see and perceive in this new creational community, 
the world would see and understand the meaning of my coming, the meaning, the outcome, the effect, the result of my death and resurrection. Life out of death has come into the world. New creation, the new creational kingdom, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And it will be evident when this community lives with this kind of oneness that testifies that their lives are hidden in God through Christ by the Spirit. We have to think of ourselves as already alive to God. You know, in the book of Romans, Paul spends the better part of six chapters, five and a half chapters, laying the foundation of understanding of what Jesus has accomplished, what it is to be a sharer in him, what it is to um, be a Christian taken up uh, in that work that has come in him. And it's in the middle of chapter six that he issues his first imperative Grammatically, an imperative is an entreaty or uh, a petition or an exhortation or even a directive, a direct commandment. But the first imperative grammatically in the book of Romans occurs in chapter 6, and it's where Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon yourselves. Understand that you died when Christ died, and by your faith in him, you have been raised to share in his resurrection life. Understand that. Live that out. And that's what he says in Colossians 3. If we've been raised up with Christ, and we have, set your heart, your mind on things above. You inhabit a new realm of existence. You need to live into that realm. You died. Your lives are hidden with Christ in God. And the glory that is his is the glory that is yours. And it will be manifested when he himself is manifested in that glory. Therefore, reckon your existence on this planet, your life in this world, your members upon the earth as dead to sin, impurity, immorality, greed, lust, all these things that characterized us in our unsaved condition. We have to think of ourselves and order our lives as already raised up in the Messiah. And so we are the beginning of God's new creation. We're not merely forgiven, though we are. We're not merely cleansed, though we are. We're not merely reconciled, though we are. We're not simply people seeking to live better, more godly lives through the power of God's grace. We are the beginning of his new creation. And you've heard me say many times, if the gospel is not how can an individual person go to heaven when he dies, get saved and go to heaven, if the gospel is the good news that in Christ, in the Messiah Jesus, God has brought into uh, existence, he has accomplished that which he said he was going to do all along and had been building the case for throughout uh, Israel's salvation history. If the gospel is the good news that God has now in these times arisen and acted and accomplished what he said he was going to do, he has ushered in the kingdom of renewal, the kingdom that would see liberation, that would see forgiveness, that would see cleansing, that would see restoring of the relationship between God and his people, that would see resurrection and renewal. 
if this gospel is the gospel of new creation, then we have to ask the question, where do we see new creation? If we go to people and say, good news, God has inaugurated his kingdom of new creation in his son. Well, if someone said that to me as a non-believer, I would say, okay, well, where is it? I don't see any new creation. I just see a broken world, broken people, evil, sin, desolation, brokenness everywhere that we look. Where is this new creation? Where is this renewal? Well, the answer is it exists in the human beings who are sharers in the Messiah. The church is the evidence of new creation. And again, that's John 17. Father, let them manifest this I in you, you in me, this intimacy that they now share and they are in us as I am in you, you are in me. Let them manifest that a new kind of unity, a new kind of intimacy in the world, then and only then will the world understand that you sent me and what you have accomplished through me. The church is the evidence of the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. The gospel is the the good news of new creation, and we are the evidence of that. We are the substance of that. We are the very proof of the words that we proclaim if we're proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so we have to order our lives. We have to think of ourselves and order our lives as those who are raised up in Christ, who are the beginning of God's new creation. And that means, secondly, then our godliness, if we talk about living a godly life, being a godly people, our godliness consists in the authenticity of this vital union and likeness with God. Again, Jesus, as true man, said, when you see me, you see the Father. Our godliness is, if you will, God-likeness. Well, what does that look like? It's not just morality. It's not just ethical living or ethical behavior. It is the authentic manifestation of this vital union and communion that we share with God. We should be able to say, and one day we will be able to say in all truth, fully, completely, to see me is to see the Father. But even now, where that is not entirely true, in many instances, and certainly to a a large extent, we have to confess that when you see me, you see me which isn't always a good thing. But nonetheless, Paul said that we bear the fragrance of Christ in every place, not just by the words that we speak, but by who we are. We manifest the godliness of bearing the life and the likeness of God himself. We are, if you will, Christ in the world. If he is the one in whom God is fully revealed, fully known, fully displayed, We are his fullness. We are his fullness. When we bear his fragrance, which should be the lives that we live, if we are living authentically, if we are living godly lives, then we are manifesting his fragrance. And in that way, to that extent, when you see us, you see God. And then lastly, I want us to think about the fact that our heavenly hope is not our spirits going off to heaven when we die. Do our spirits, in a sense, 
enter into the presence of God in a way that we presently uh, are not sensitive to. And it's not that our spirits go off someplace. They don't fly off to a place called heaven. We are even now the dwelling of God in the spirit, but we don't have the sense of that in the way that we will when we die. When, our, when we die and our spirits are liberated from our bodies, then we will have the sense of the presence of God and this intimacy with God, this I and you, you and me, that we don't really experience now. We don't see it with our eyes. We don't hear it with our ears. So our heavenly hope, our, our, the goal uh, that we should have in our mind as we live our lives, it's not our spirits flying off to a place called heaven. It will be an awareness, a sense of the intimacy that we have with God that we don't now presently experience, but it itself is just an intermediate state. It's not the ultimate outcome. It's just an intermediate time until the last day, the resurrection of the last day, the renewal of all things. And so from a biblical standpoint, the heavenly hope that we ought to have is the assured longing for the consummation of what already exists. As I said before, the resurrection of the inner man, the fact that in our spirits we already are raised up in Christ Jesus, that is the surety that our bodies will also one day be taken up in the life of Jesus so that we in our totality, body and spirit, will be sharers in the resurrection, the resurrection life of the Messiah who himself was raised, body and spirit. What we look for then, what we hope for then, what our longing is set on is not the liberation of our spirits from our bodies, to go off to some ethereal, mysterious place called heaven. We're longing for the day when death itself is swallowed up in life, 1 Corinthians 15, when corruption puts on incorruption, when mortality is swallowed up in immortality, when our bodies also are delivered from death and corruption and mortality and are given full life, are made to share, to have the likeness of the resurrection body of the Messiah himself, as Paul said to the Philippians, that we are appointed to share in the likeness of Jesus' glorified body. Our heavenly hope then is the longing for the day when we, body and spirit, will be fully taken up, perfected in the life of God. Our longing is for the consummation of what already exists. So our hope then isn't going to heaven when we die, but our full Christiformity, our full Christiformity, our being fully conformed to the last Adam, fully being fully conformed to the true man, being fully conformed to the resurrected, glorified image son who even now is mediating the father's lordship and care and stewardship and sovereignty over his creation. That is what we are heirs of. That is what our destiny is all about. So to put it this way, our hope is the full attainment of our sonship, 
which is our complete conformity to Jesus, the consummate image son, the one who is resurrection and life. And that tells us then lastly how to understand our mission in the world. Paul, after talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and explaining how it works and and how this will play out in the last day with the resurrection of our bodies, he encourages them to not be discouraged, to understand that their labor, their work in the Lord is not in vain. These truths, this hope, This confidence should empower us. It should encourage us. It should strengthen us in resolve. Our labor in this world is not in vain. But that also shows us the nature of our mission. Our mission is not soul winning. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned to see people who are unbelievers come to faith. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned to see people come to know Jesus, to be saved, as it were. But our goal is not soul winning, uh, seeing people's souls get saved so they can go to heaven when they die. Our goal is to see God's new creational kingdom grow and spread. Our goal is to see human beings enter into the one who is resurrection and life. Our goal is to be testifiers, witnesses of this new creational kingdom that God has inaugurated and of which we are the beginning, standing upon Jesus, the first fruit. We are to be testifiers. We are to be ambassadors. We are to be heralds of the gospel of the kingdom. We are to seek to bring people out of death into life, to become a part of this purpose of God that will see him summing up everything in the heavens and the earth, the whole creation in his son, such that at last God will become all in all. And the relationship of perfect intimacy, perfect love, perfect devotion, perfect faithfulness, between him and the entire creation, that goal will be at last realized. God will be all in all. That's the heart of our mission in this world. And so as we come to the table then, I would say this, we have to view the table even as the table of resurrection. It is the table in which we commemorate the death of Jesus his broken body, his shed blood, but in view of the resurrection that came from that. The table is the table of resurrection. We are attesting to our share in Jesus' life, his resurrection life. And remember in John 6, after he had fed the multitude and then they came and found him later and they were desiring that he would again uh, fill their bellies with food. And he said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. God gave them bread out of heaven, but that bread didn't sustain them in the ultimate sense. They ate it and they died. But I am the true bread that comes down out of heaven, the bread that comes out of heaven for the sake of the life of the world. Whoever eats this bread and drinks this blood has life. If you don't, you have no life in yourself. 
the table speaks of our share in the life of Jesus, which is his resurrection life. And thus Paul said, we eat and we drink in remembrance, but with a view to his coming. This is our remembrance. This is our testifying that we are sharers in his life, that he is our life. And we celebrate this table until he comes. We celebrate this table in the hope, in the sure confidence of the day when death, mortality is swallowed up in life. When we are made body and spirit fully complete in the resurrected Messiah. When the creation itself then will be renewed, liberated from its bondage to the curse. And when our God will be all in all. That's what the table speaks of. And after I pray, uh, Mark's going to play a song for us. And I'd like that to be our time of meditation as we listen to those lyrics. And then we will take the table together. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you administer these truths to each one who is present. And, And maybe much of this is familiar Maybe there's not a whole lot new in these things for many who are with us today, but we all need to be reminded. We get distracted by many things. We get captivated by many things. We find our gaze and our hearts and our minds very much set on this earthly plane and earthly demands, earthly obligations, earthly concerns. And so I pray that this has given us an opportunity for a fresh look, a fresh consideration to remind us again of what really it is to be a Christian, what it is that we are partakers in, what it is that you have accomplished in your son, what it means to take that label Christian, that title to ourselves, to claim Jesus as the one who defines us, as the one who leads us, as the one who is our life. And I pray, Father, that if any or most of these things are are new or foreign to some who are with us, I pray that you will, by your Spirit, minister them to their understanding. Enable them to see what they didn't formerly see. Enable them to rethink and to own this truth of resurrection, even as Jesus himself is resurrection in life, to own this truth of resurrection and their relationship with it in a new way, in a profound and a powerful way. We ask that you would transform each of us by these things and cause us all the more, day by day, hour by hour, by the ministry of your spirit and our mutual ministry to one another, the work of your word to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. May that be even our desire for ourselves and for our ministry to one another, to see everyone presented complete in Christ, to be fully conformed to the one who is resurrection and life. So minister to us in our time of meditation. And Father, as we come to the table, we pray that you would cause it to be powerfully effectual in your purpose and work within us. I thank you for each one present. I pray for your continued grace and care 
leading, nurturing. And may we all continue to grow. May we all continue to thrive together. May your purpose in us individually and together be realized. And may we be faithful to this high and holy calling. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.